God's house today. If you're visiting with us, we're uh, in uh, toward the latter stages of a series on Paul's letter to the church at Rome that we began uh, back in January. We're moving to the 14th chapter today, uh, verses 1 through 12, and I hope that you'll find that passage of scripture in your Bible or in your bulletin insert and we'll use it as a unison reading together. This is where Paul begins to talk about uh, those things that are not necessarily essential in the faith. Okay? So let's read the Word of God together. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. In February of 1554, Queen Mary I of England sent her chaplain to commune with her star prisoner, in the Tower of London. The prisoner was Lady Jane Grey, and the intent of the Aaron, quoting John Fox, was to reduce her from the doctrine of Christ to Queen Mary's religion. You see, Lady Jane was a Protestant, and Queen Mary was a Catholic, and it was in that volatile time of religious history from which this story comes. And the chaplain questioned Lady Jane on the relationship of faith 
to love. The stakes were high. Would her life be saved? Or would she sustain God's truth? Which would it be? The chaplain pressed the prisoner, Is there nothing to be required or looked for in a Christian but to believe in God? Does not St. Paul say, If I have all faith without love, it is nothing? Lady Jane answered each deliberate word recorded by the legal witness. True it is that faith and love go together, yet love is comprehended in faith. We would say love is seen in faith, or a true faith produces love, love for God and love for one another. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And that's love is real. It works itself out in day-to-day life. You may be wondering why we're talking about love at the beginning of this sermon when it wasn't even mentioned in our passage of Scripture. And the reason we're speaking about love is because it comes within the context this passage does of what Paul had been talking about back in chapter 13 where he wrote, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this love is an outgrowth of the love that God first had for us in Jesus Christ. And this love is therefore our faith in action. We know how to love because God has loved us first. He's taught us what love is. And as His Holy Spirit works in our hearts, we begin to pick up this theme and this practice of loving one another. This love is also coming to chapter 14 now, why we do not pass judgment on one another in the non-essentials of the faith. We term it that way because this is what Paul begins to discuss here in chapter 14, what we might call the non-essentials or the morally indifferent issues of the Christian faith and life. We need to make this distinction because Paul has spent most of this letter talking about the essentials of the faith. He's been talking about things like like sin and adoption and justification and sanctification and glorification. He's been talking about the deity and sovereignty of Christ and so much more. Those are the essentials of the faith. We have to be in agreement on those issues because they have to do with who God is and what He has done for us in the gift of Jesus Christ and the redemption we can claim through Him. They have to do with who we are, what we have done and why we need this grace of God in Jesus Christ. But what we eat or what we drink, what days we worship and when, whether we treat one day differently than others, these are the non-essentials of the faith and Paul tells us that our faith in Christ which produces this love for one another even has an effect in how we live when it comes to these indifferent issues and practices. Look at what he says in verse 2. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while another person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? You see, Paul deals with these minor issues in the life of the Christian much like he does with the major issues in the life of the Christian. He deals with them through theological truth. God has given every good and perfect gift, especially this gift of salvation in Christ. This is true for every person. We agree with Scripture. What do we have that we did not receive? So we have to watch out lest we treat a brother or sister in the faith in any other way. Also as Christians, we always remember that God is the judge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul has reminded us of that scriptural truth near the end of chapter 12 and he reminds us again that we're all servants of God and therefore it's up to God to pass judgment on our service. It's not up to one another, especially in these non-essentials. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to hear this passage as a catch-all that we never judge one another in the life of the church because that's not what Scripture teaches. That's what a lot of people think Scripture teaches. They see this right here. They hear these words, don't judge one another, and they think that means own everything. But again, Paul's talking about the non-essentials of the faith. We know that there are other places in Scripture like 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 2 where we're talking about the essentials of the faith, where we're talking about the truth of the gospel. And there, Paul tells us that such people are to be corrected at once, called on to repent. And if they fail to repent, eventually be cut off from the life of the church. It's passages like those in 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 2 and others that lead denominations like ours to produce a book of discipline that we have in the life of the church and as standards of our denomination. But that's not what we're dealing with in this passage. We're dealing with morally indifferent issues. And as you can tell, this food issue was huge in the early church. It's not so much to us. We could care less if some of us are vegetarians or vegans or we love to eat meat or whatever. It's not a big deal. But this issue was big for them because it was a little bit different. You know, you had these Jews... These Jews who all their lives had been used to dietary laws and customs and they could eat this and they couldn't eat that. And then they were converted to the Christian faith. And at the same time, you had these Gentiles over here who'd been pagans and who who were used to the anything-goes philosophy of consumption who all of a sudden had been converted to the church. And you mix all of these people together from very differing backgrounds and there were issues coming up in the life of the church, week in and week out. We know that the first major argument the early church had concerned this issue. We can read about that in Acts 15, what we normally call the Jerusalem Council. It was about this issue. We also know that the Apostle Peter, 
You know, Peter, one of the great leaders of the church, was rebuked by Paul because he was misrepresenting the truth of the gospel by how and with whom he's eating. That's in Galatians 2. Paul also speaks to much the same issue, meat offered to idols and whether it's okay to eat that meat. In 1 Corinthians 8, and you can uh, at home later today read 1 Corinthians 8 and use it as a commentary on the words that Paul gives us here in Romans 14 about much the same issue. Jesus, and this is what most of us don't remember, you know, he dealt with this issue early in his ministry in Mark 7, 14, we see his words where he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a man by which going into him can defile him. But the things which come out of a man are what defile him. And the disciples ask him about it. You know, like many times they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't know the point he was making. They said, Tell us about that. I mean, what, what were you really saying? And he said to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then passes on? And Mark tells us parenthetically there, Thus he declared all foods clean. And of course the vision that God gave to Peter that we can read about in Acts 10 in conjunction with Cornelius the centurion says much the same thing. What God has cleansed, let no man call unclean. And then Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. All of these places in Scripture, the truth is not any different than what we read here in Romans 14 about this particular issue. Now you see, when our Westminster Confession of Faith says that the ceremonial law has been abrogated, that is, it's been done away with, this is in part what it's talking about, the fact that the law has been changed. And the reason we know the law has been changed is because the coming of Jesus Christ changes everything. Just like it changed history, it changed so much in the law because there's no need for sacrifices he's the once and for all sacrifice and the writer of Hebrews there in 7.12 tells us when there is a change in the priesthood talking about Jesus there is necessarily a change in the law as well the coming of Jesus did away with a great many things one of which was the ceremonial law and His coming established the rule of the Holy Spirit. As Paul tells us in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness so that all who have faith will be justified. But love is the fulfilling of the law and believers like you and me are to receive each other in love. This means that matters of food drink, holy days, and the like. These things are so unimportant, so unessential, that to give them a prominent place is to distort what the church is all about and who the church really is. Now, I say it that way because what do we Christians do? 
What do we do with non-essential things? We many times act like they are totally essential. And all of a sudden, we split up into pro and con camps in full battle regalia. Surely you see to how this passage speaks to several things on which you and I may disagree. It speaks to those who eat meat and to those who are only vegetarians. It speaks to those who drink alcohol and those who refrain uh, from drinking alcohol for conscience sake and because of the weaker brother principle that we'll talk about next week. It speaks to those who believe and practice that you do not do hardly anything on the Lord's day as well as to those who think you can do anything on the Lord's day. The reformer Philip Melanchthon once wrote, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What we would call love. And Paul would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. In fact, the latter two-thirds of that statement uh, could be a title for this passage in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And we see that freedom clearly in verse 5 and following where Paul says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike for each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, we have to be sure in our conscience that whatever we are doing, we are doing for the honor and glory of God Almighty, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This notion of glorifying Him is all important. That is, after all, our chief end, isn't it? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever as the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us. And as we seek to glorify Him by our actions, then we live to Him and we live for Him. And if we're living by His will, then we, of course, will love one another, won't we? Jesus said, you're my friends if you, if you do what I command you. In the Gospel of John, He says that within the context of giving you a new commandment that you should love one another as I have loved you. Now, When you hear this talk about your conscience or being fully convinced in your own mind, if you're like me, you begin to think, well, how can my conscience become that wise so that I know what is the right thing to do? Notice how Paul points us back to Christ. In verse 8 we read, If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, in life and in death, we are to glorify God. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And please note that nothing lies outside the scope of the authority of Jesus Christ, not even these minor, non-essential issues in the life of the church. He is Lord of both the dead and the living. In other words, we need to bring Him glory in our lives and we need to bring Him glory in our deaths. I said to the early congregation this morning, you know, the the best thing a preacher can ever say about you at your funeral is that you lived your life in a way such that God was glorified, that God was honored in the things that you did, in the things that you choose not chose not to do. Do our lives show that in the decisions that we make with, with the essentials in life as well as the non-essentials to which this passage refers? Do our decisions show that Jesus is truly Lord and I am His servant? Are we seeking to honor Him with the things we do? Are our decisions based upon His Word and and how He would want us to live? As we read through this passage, we see early on that Paul mentions stronger and weaker Christians, which I think is unfortunate because we Americans in the 21st century church, we hear those terms stronger and weaker, and we're already thinking strong Christians and weak Christians. You know, the strong Christians are way up here. They're the ones who know everything, who are spiritually mature, who have everything going on. And these weak Christians, you know, they've just got to really step it up. But that's not the point Paul is making. In fact, that's not even the distinction that he's making. As Donald Gray Barnhouse puts it in his commentary, the heart of this section is the astounding fact that those who are strong in the faith are not considered by God to be any better than those who are weak in the faith. And that this passage is intended to impress the strong with this fact. Notice how God doesn't treat them any differently. They're all going to stand strong and weak together because God causes them to stand. They've all been welcomed by God, strong and weak alike. And that word faith in this context refers not so much to your belief or mine, but rather to our convictions about what our relationship with God in Christ allows us to do at any given time and in any given circumstance. Those labeled weak are simply those people who do not think that their faith allows them to do certain things that the so-called strong feel free to do week in and week out. Paul's point is that our differences over these morally indifferent issues should not interfere with our love for one another and especially our unity in the faith. As you know, there are certain givens in the Christian life. We know that from God's Word. We're to to worship Him and praise Him. We are to spend time in His Word, reflect upon it, meditate upon it. We're to pray. We're to love God with heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We, but there's an entire other range of issues within the Christian life in which the Bible gives us no specific direction. I mean, should I have read out of the King James this morning? Is that the only thing we can read in worship? Or the NIV? Or the ESV? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. You men, are you supposed to only wear coats and ties to worship or can you get by without a tie? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. You ladies, are you only to wear dresses or can you get by with slacks and capris? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. What day are we to worship? What time of the week? Where are we to worship? What kind of songs are we to sing? What kind of instruments are we to use? I'll tell you what the Bible says about that. It doesn't specify. It says we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It says that much. And in Psalm 150, it says we're supposed to use cymbals in worship. Patrick, you got a cymbal on that organ? (laughs) You've got something that's pretty close to it. The psalmist also says we're to use horns and strings and pipes and he just names all kinds of things. In other words, we're supposed to use everything we can to worship God as long as you're honoring Him. Now don't misunderstand. It's not a matter of anything goes in worship. These decisions run through the filter of our conscience. Remember what Paul says. He mentioned that in chapter 13, and here in verse 5 in our passage today, he reiterates how we must be fully convinced in our own minds. What we do with these non-essentials in the faith must honor and glorify Jesus Christ. If we are truly honoring Christ, then we're not going to be sinful in what we're doing, will we? And if we're fully convinced in our minds, then it must be the best way I can act in this given situation based upon love. Love for God and His kingdom. Love for one another. Now we began today talking about Lady Jane Grey. She believed and stated that our faith activates love. Her words, love is comprehended in faith. You know, she was 17 when she said that. 17. Can you imagine that kind of wisdom at 17? And while her death at age 17, was over what I call one of the essentials of the faith. Her motivation for that death was the same motivation that Paul speaks about in this passage before us today. And that is, it's a labor of love. That's why we don't judge one another in the non-essentials of the faith because we love each other. 
And we love each other because God first loved us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.